G'day folks and welcome to the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. My name's Josh Power and this podcast is an opportunity for me to interview anglers in the fly fishing community, both within Australia and overseas. I'll be speaking with people that I find interesting and inspirational, industry leaders and anglers that have helped pave the way for future generations and hopefully in turn preserve a piece of fly fishing history. I hope you enjoy the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fisho's Tack World Harvey Bay, your one-stop fishing shop on the Fraser Coast stocking a wide range of fly tying materials and tackle with access to all the leading brands. Mako Eyewear, a proudly Australian-owned eyewear company that has been on the leading edge of polarised sunglasses for over 25 years. Manic Tackle Project, a collective of like-minded anglers bringing some of the world's best fly fishing brands to the Australian and New Zealand market, including Sims, Scott Fly Rods, Able, Ross and Waterworks Lamps and Reels, Airflow Fly Lines, Loon Outdoors and much more. And Garmin Australia, whether you're chasing a new chart plotter, fish finder, trolling motor or audio system, Garmin has you covered. Hi guys, Dre here in South Africa. Um, I'm a mad keen fisherman from uh, South Africa, currently living uh, out in Cape Town, uh, the bottom end of the African continent, and uh, pretty stoked to be here chatting with Josh. Thanks, Andre. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. I think anyone that looks at your Instagram account and sees some of the photos and the destinations that you go to, it's always the comment, oh, check out this guy with the crazy hair and the massive fish that he's holding up. <laughs> yeah, the, the hair has certainly become a little bit of a signature, I guess, over the years. Um, it's falling out a little bit these days, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's always, it always keeps the sun off me, which is pretty good as well. It keeps my head warm in the cold weather and keeps the sun off in the hot weather, which is good. Well, I think first of all, um, in this interview, we might have a look at where you grew up in South Africa and how you got into fishing to start with. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be fly fishing. It could just be fishing in general, how you got into it, and then we can delve into the fly after that. Yeah, I think uh, I was pretty lucky. I think like a lot of South Africans, grew up with a dad who, who fished. Uh, my dad grew up in Zimbabwe or Rhodesia back in the days, and uh, I, I was born and raised on the east coast of South Africa, about 100 kilometers south of Durban which is the biggest city on the East Coast. So it's heading up towards our sort of more tropical waters. Um, and yeah, I kind of, I mean, always got told I was, I came out the womb with a fishing rod in my hand, pretty much um, obsessed <laughs> from a very young age. So, and kind of lucky in that my dad fished, like I said, so he was always very patient and dragging a little fishing mad kid along wherever he went. And also, uh, my dad was a veterinarian, so we, we had access to all these uh, dams and things like that uh, on the um, in and around the small town where I grew up. Uh, sugarcane farms, there's a lot of dams, so there's a lot of bass fishing in the summer, a lot of rock and surf fishing during the you know well pretty much any time we could, and yeah, traveled a lot. I guess um, my folks not necessarily internationally, but my folks are very keen on getting out and camping and heading up into the mountains to fish for trout or heading down into the Transgar to go and fish in the estuaries and, and along the rivers. So, yeah, that's kind of, I mean, I, I was obsessed, obsessed, obsessed from day one, man. Um, kept me on the straight and narrow a little bit, I think. But, uh, yeah, I think very luckily was fortunate enough to have a dad who was very keen of fishing and very keen to get me into it. So it just blossomed from there and just got worse and worse, I think, in terms of an, an obsession um 
yeah, and then the fly fishing thing came along, I think, when I was about four or five years old. Um, my dad had never fly fished, but uh, obviously back then when anybody talked about trout fishing, it was always fly fishing. So um, my folks and my godparents headed up into the Drakensberg Mountains, and uh, my dad picked up a fly rod for the first time. And I think really digged it. I guess he was at the stage of his life where he was wanting to find something new in fishing as well. And I think like the fly fishing bug certainly bites a lot of people who it's a progression. I mean, not to be whatever wanky about it, but if you fly fish, it's typically for a lot of folks comes after doing all these other kinds of fishing. And it's a, an avenue that then a lot of people just really get obsessed into because it brings together the best things of fishing in my opinion. So my dad got really into it all of, like at that age. And uh, when I was about four or five and I just followed along. So I've been swinging a flower since I'm about five years old, I guess. I should probably be a lot better at it by now, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of where I, yeah, where I grew up and, and how I got into the fly fishing thing. And uh, yeah, I had a couple of people that I learned a lot from as a, you know, when I was really young, um, because my dad and I were learning at the same time, but uh, my folks met friends that uh, at the time who were, keen fly fishermen and stuff so I got to take it under a few people's wings and taught how to cast and taught about bugs and all the entomology shit and all of that and uh yeah cold mornings throwing fly playing flies for trout in the mountains I got a lot of fond memories of that and we've actually got a couple of mutual friends that you sort of grew up around through like knowing through your dad um Brett Pretorius and Delvin Bennett they live here in Harvey Bay where I'm based how did you meet those guys originally yeah, some seriously fishy dudes, man. Those guys were kind of like my heroes when I was uh, when I was younger. Um, my dad and I, well, my dad, not not I. My dad um, started was part of the group that started a fly fishing club, a local fly fishing club where we, where I grew up. A small little town. It was mainly focused on saltwater fly fishing. It was a fairly new um, sort of in its infancy in that part of the world. My dad wanted to start a club, just trying get knowledge get access to waters and trying not to be one of those club clubs but just a group of guys who like to fish and can learn and and i think the main thing was my dad wanted to just learn and and delvin and um brett and kevin smith um delvin's brother as well another guy dean Wynn. they were all sort of in there i would guess then they seemed like really old kind of cool dudes to me <laughs> But they probably were in their, you know, early 20s maybe, and I was like early teens. And they joined the club and, um, I, you know, I got to know them through that and certainly from, uh, they were all exceptional anglers and exceptional fly tires as well. You know, we were getting into the whole fly tying thing at the same time. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I got some pretty good memories of, you know, Delvin catching big uh, Garrick or Learfish, that, you know, we call them Garrick up there, um, which is kind of, I guess similar, I'm not sure if you know them, it's, you get them in and around South Africa and up into the med, kind of like okay. a big queen fish looking thing, um, catching a big one of those uh, on one of the first outings that we had and uh, certainly learned to throw a cast net from Brett, um, taught me how to throw a cast net and the method that I still use to this day. Um, and yeah, so it was good to, they were kind of the dudes that I grew up wanting to be like, you know, they just seem to fish all the time and catch a shit ton of fish. They probably still do. They were fishy bastards back then. I'm sure they're still fishy bastards now. 
nothing's really changed. Like Brett's still right into fishing out of float tubes and kick boats, chasing big barra and sooty grunter and toga and all that sort of thing. He actually, um, fly is actually a relatively new thing for me. It's been the last sort of oh, three, four years, I guess, that I've really got into it. Um, and when I first started, he said, come around for a coffee in the morning. I'll show you how to tie a few flies. At that time, the line I had, it was a little six weight and just, yeah, didn't have a welded loop on the end. So he said, I'll show you how to do that too. And yeah, pretty much spent the whole day there. I think got there at eight, left at about 5.30 in the afternoon and um, tied up a few little foamies that he uses a lot in the freshwater. And then I think it was the next day or a couple of days later, I went down to one of the local ponds and caught a few tarpon on there and I was pretty much hooked since then. So it was really good having someone like Brett who's so passionate and willing to teach. Um, yeah. And then on the other hand, you've got Delvin, who's just one of the fishiest dudes going in the bay here. He keeps a bit of a low profile, but um, exceptional flats fisherman and just angler in general. I've learned quite a bit from Delvin. And yeah, he's a phenomenal fly tie still, tie some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, those boys are fishy, man. I, mean, I think that's you know. that's when I was sort of first... Well, one of the first times I heard your name as well, I was um, Brett was buying a couple of bucktails off me. I got some Primo ones in and he said, oh, I want to tie some beast flies. And I said, oh, have you seen this guy in South Africa? And he goes, oh, <laughs> shit, he was in the same club or his dad was in the same club <laughs> yeah. and I knew him in South Africa. And <laughs> Yeah, small world, eh? there you go. But I think also a big thing that I learned from those guys, you know, and it is their sort of dedication to getting stuff done. I mean, this is obviously way before the sort of the interwebs and, and uh, anything like that. It was purely getting stuff done by just getting out there and fishing and learning. And those boys fished hard <clears throat> and they caught a lot of fish. And it was, it was a good lesson to learn as well from at that sort of stage with that it's not necessarily going to be easy, but the more you do it, the, the easier it gets, so to speak, and putting the time in and, and, getting out there and yeah they were dropping float tubes in all sorts of water back in the day um just to chase any kind of fish on fly and just find i mean one of the rivers got crocodiles in it i don't know if delvin and and uh brett were still there when you know but one of the other buddies who still lives on the coast uh dean win is also an exceptional exceptional angler um and he caught a little baby crocodile that had escaped from one of the croc farms off his kick boat. It actually made the current newspaper on flower, which is pretty hilarious. And he's since caught a few more. I remember thinking, seeing that, and being like, fuck, that's so cool. And my mother being, don't you even think about it. So, yeah. But yeah, it's good. That those guys really, I learned a lot from their attitude to fishing, you know, and, and getting out there and, and making it work. And yeah, not, and that's that's pretty much it. Like making it work. I know Brett Hill he can still make his own lines now. If he can't get a particular taper, he'll just yeah chop different lines and make his own tapers really? up. And yeah, like he's still very like if ever I get a line that's got a bit of a nick in it, or if I say hey I'm going to try a new one, do you want this? He'll end up doing something with it and go out and just whack fish. That's cool, man. That's seriously cool. Yeah, keeping it old school. Yeah, and the boy can cast too. Sure. Oh, he's freaking unreal with a light rod, so. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's also like you can go, I watched him and realized, okay, that's not, it's not about power, it's all about technique. You know, I think my dad had been trying to drum that into me since I was tiny. Um, you know, it's technique, technique, technique. But until you actually see it in action, and I remember seeing Brett throwing a massive Dolberg diver on a five weight and just laser beaming casts, boom, 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 one after the other, and he just made it look effortless. I was like, Okay, there's like, yep, 
that's how you do it. It's like, okay, I'm going to pay attention now. So, yeah, good dudes. Tell them, tell them all I say hello. Yeah, yeah, they'll be um, definitely keen. So I know Delvin will probably listen to this on the way back from work. But getting back to um, South Africa, you've got an incredibly diverse fishery on your doorstep. When you are home and you're not on trips and that sort of thing, what are you mainly targeting? Like you brushed on um, that you've got trout in the mountains and that sort of thing. What else are the what the main species you target at home? Yeah, we we do. We're, we're lucky to have a, a fairly diverse fishery here. You know, I mean, it always grass is always greener on the other side. You know, we don't have to us we don't have anywhere near the diversity that you guys have or that maybe the states has or or things like that but we do have some pretty cool stuff from uh exotics to indigenous as well so there's obviously trout here we kind of they're much like the rest of the world um you know they're a they're an invader that was brought here late 1800s but they've survived fairly well in streams and lakes um so there's pretty varied amount of trout fishing to be had here where i am in cape town now we've got some really amazing small i guess they're like freestone streams really really short uh, streams but pretty steep um but crystal clear water small fish pocket water you know it's it's size 16 and smaller fishing 6x 7x most of the time fishing at most a three-weight rod uh i used to fish a double nought uh weight rods which is an amazing little side fishery the fish are tiny anything over 12 inches is pretty you know huge but from that we've got really good bass fishing throughout the whole country like largemouth bass and specifically smallmouth bass down here in the western cape we've got some a pretty incredible uh smallmouth bass fishing so on the freshwater side that's the two sort of main ones that were the main exotics close to town here and then we've got Yellowfish, which is our one of an indigenous cyprinid, I think it's a cyprinid, but it's basically like a. It looks like a small marsier, um, the largemouth yellowfish, which is the largest scaled fish in southern Africa. I think so. You know, they get <clears throat> upwards of forty pounds. A true trophy would be twenty uh, for a lot of folks. That's kind of what you're aiming for. Um, Smallmouth yellows, and it's a it's a great. I think. It's done a huge that the species itself has done a huge amount for fly fishing in South Africa, and it made it became the accessible fish. Once people figured out that you could catch yellowfish on fly, it really did open up because they're in a huge range of waters, um, and a lot of them close to, up to the cities near Joburg, the Vaal River, the Orange River, and all the tributaries thereof. And then there's a whole subset of species that kind of make up the yellowfish family. I think there's eleven of them that can be caught in various places around the country, and you know, some of them eat dries, some of them eat streamers, uh, some of them eat crabs, some of them eat only tiny little nymphs and can be very, very technical. <clears throat> others, it's very much like swinging big streamers and big waters. And then others are, you know, we have here in the Western Cape, um, the Clan William yellowfish, which is kind of the holy grail of yellowfish here, just because it's probably the prettiest, uh, second biggest, but lives in probably the prettiest environments, but also the most remote environments. So those waters are well, where they where they uh, can be targeted are, are fairly well kept secrets by those people that do chase them. Um, yeah, so that's what else have we got? Freshwater wise, obviously fairly close by. We've got tigerfish, which are a blast. If you you know you've got to travel a bit for those, but we do have them within South Africa's borders. And then on the saltwater side, uh, where I'm now down in Cape Town is a I say it's relatively tough uh, fishing 
or on the saltwater side, or you just got to put in the time and put in the hours. But we've got yellowtail, which is a, a relatively easy fish to target here on, on off the boats. But in our estuaries and things, cob, which I guess is very similar to your mulloway or jewfish, um, yeah, we have a, that's a that's a huge target for us down in this part of the world. Um, and ours do get to upwards of eighty kilos, although you know anything over a meter on fly is what everybody's chasing down here. Um, leofish, which I talked about earlier, and then grunter would be probably the most popular saltwater species down here. Um, different to your guys, sooty grunter, ours is a. I think you do get something similar in your part of the world um, yeah we get different types of grunter like baku grunter and coal grunter and all that sort of thing so there are a few different um, varieties here in australia right well so the main one that we're targeting here is the spotted grunter which is very, and it's targeting them on the flats so they're eating prawns they're coming they're tailing it's south africa's permit basically um probably oh, it, far, it might almost be more like if this is in the salt, then it might be a bit more like we have a grunter called a javelin fish. Um, yeah, that's which you can, very, very similar. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's, yeah, in the fresh, we've got the sooty grunter and the coal grunter and that sort of thing. And then in the salt, you've got the javelin fish, um, which they're, yeah, great sport fishing um, target, but they're also great eating. Um, a lot of people yeah. here rate them higher than barramundi and threadfin salmon and that sort of thing in the salt. Yeah, they make good nuggets, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they uh, that's that fishery has become the, certainly the um, the grunter fishing. Uh, you know, just it's a fish that tails on the flats and can be targeted. You know, proper sight fishing style and very finicky fish, skinny water. Um, so it's it's about the closest thing that we've got here to sort of flats fishing in this country. So it's taken taken over a lot of people's obsession chasing grunter. Yeah, okay. And going back to the tiger fish, like obviously for Australians, we see them in those massive fangs on them basically. Um, what sort of water are you targeting, targeting them in and what sort of flies are you throwing? And um, I mean, a, a variety. I think thankfully over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of exploration into different tiger fish waters. Um, but traditionally you're fishing the, the Zambezi River system is what I grew up fishing. My dad is from Zimbabwe. The, the Zambezi River is on the, the northern border between Zimbabwe and Zambia and has Kariba Dam. Um, and I grew up, you know, fishing there on holiday a lot. And that's a variety of fishing in the river itself and the Zambezi River itself in various places. It's, you know, it's a big river. And there, as a kid, first off, we were targeting them with spinners and spoons and dead baits and things on the bottom and then started throwing flies at them as I got older. And it's, that's an amazing environment to fish for them in. You know, it's a big canyon that you're fishing, beautiful, you know, big swirling pools and things like that. Um, mainly subsurface back in the day was always throwing basically clouses, clouser, clouser, and more clouses. And the Gamma Katsu B10S was a serious revelation when it came along back in the day. We always were trying to use like big saltwater hooks, um, because we thought we needed these big, strong hooks and then discovered the B10S um, with that stupidly sharp point. I still say, I don't think there's a sharper thing on the planet than a, a brand new Gamma B10S. It's so bloody sharp. Define but that made a huge difference. Too. Oh, exactly. Penetration. And so that made a huge difference in actually staying buckled to a lot of the tiger fish. So a lot of the time you it's a you're just treating it like a like any big river. They they are structure orientated. Um, 
not so much ambush predators like a, a barrow or a bass or something like that would be, but they do like a bit of structure here and there. So you drifted, typically drifting on the boat, casting at the banks and swinging um, fast, fast sink up lines or full sink lines and, uh, and clouses. But then there are environments and certainly times of the day where they start smashing on top. So people, you know, we can throw flippers or gurglers and, and small poppers for them, which has been pretty entertaining. And then you've got the classic Botswana, um, Okavongo Delta fishery, which is this huge marshland. And they have what's called the catfish run or the barbel run. It's quite an incredible event. So this huge delta system um, floods during the well, a certain time of the year. It's usually around the middle of the year. All the rains from Angola come and flood this massive, massive floodplain. And these all these tiny little bait fish. So we've got lots of little tilapia species um, and bullheads and all these weird little minoe things um, that live within the whole delta. And they go up into the papyrus and into all the weeds and things like that to spawn. And then once the rains stop and those fish are spawning, then the all of that water recedes back into the main channels as it dries out. And it pulls all that bait into these main little channels and we have this uh, catfish, the sharp-toothed catfish, which is called barbel here, that just group together in these schools of thousands and sit on the edges as that water is getting sucked out of the, you know, out of the, the floodplains and just detonate bait for hours and hours and hours at a time. It's like total chaos, like a full saltwater blitz, but in the middle of a, a, a swamp in the middle of Botswana. And the tiger fish sit on the edge of that because the... the uh, catfish are smashing the bait and then the tigers just sit on the outside of that and pick up the, the scrap so to speak so it's kind of like a sight fishing chase you know you're looking for diving birds and things like that because the birds obviously follow it as well and zoom up there and then just drift along the edge of that chuck your clouses or your deceivers or anything in there and away you go try not hook a catfish <laughs> that sounds pretty unreal like Good, yeah, cool. the, the fact you yeah you've got that sort of gorgy sort of country and just looking at those fish i remember saying I, when i was in cairns last year i dropped into barry um cross's house he's a bit of a sport fishing icon here in australia and did a lot of game fishing and um he had one a taxidermied one in his his fishing room oh, basically right. and yeah. just looked at it and went, that's a cool fish i'm gonna take one of those off one day yeah, they are super cool. And I mean, it's a, it, it's a very iconic African fish, which is rad. They fight bloody hard. And they, I think the big thing with tiger fish is the hit. They, they hit the fly or lure. It's just, it's difficult to describe how hard and just sort of out of the bluish it really is. Um, they do just hammer a fly ridiculously hard. Uh, it's often why it's tough to stay buttoned on them because you just get hit so hard, you often miss your strip. Um, and visually, you know, it's a fish that, that jumps and shakes its head like a top and you can, you know, you can kind of hear that gill rattle. I'm sure Barra do the same thing. Um, and they are in hand, just magnificent. You know, they really are beautiful things. Yeah, so they pretty much tick all the boxes. They jump, they fight hard. They look like they want to kill you. <laughs> yeah. And thankfully they're not particularly good at eating. So not a lot of people are, uh, they're not really being targeted for food which is great so it's kind of kept their populations in relatively good order so yeah. i'm just going to plug my computer in because it's just telling me it's going to die which is unusual yeah Sorry. that wouldn't be ideal <laughs> no. 
And for, for people sort of outside, like from Australia and people from the States that want to come over and chase the tiger fish and that, what's it like access, like accessibility wise? And like, are there any safety concerns in certain areas or? No, I mean, it's, it's pretty good. There's some, there's some, look, there's a couple of uh, options as well in terms of, uh, like I mentioned earlier, there's been some exploration into new waters and things. And, uh, the guys who are running the trips up in Tanzania for, which is there's a couple of different species of tiger fish i can't remember the exact um scientific names of them it's too early in the morning for me to nerd that hard but <laughs> what um they sort of referring to as the tanzanian or the blue tiger fish um which lives in these sort of much smaller rivers but grows massive um so it's a much more intimate setting i guess smaller shallower rivers but the fish just get you know upwards of quite regularly upwards of 20 pounds and 25 pounds which is a big tiger you know when your other tiger fish that we're typically chasing here 10 pounds is your sort of benchmark um and that's a that's an incredible trip to probably one of the most remote parts of africa that's still accessible um but it comes with this pretty hefty price tag i think it's you know upwards must be around ten thousand dollars now maybe more but in terms of you know there's a, a bunch of other opportunities to places like the whole of of the Okavango Delta, the upper Zambezi in Zambia, uh, lower Zambezi, again, out of Zambia or Zimbabwe. And then we have the Pongola fishery that we have on a on a dam here, um, which is sort of up near the Mozambique border on our east coast, called uh, Jacini has over the last 10 years really, really grown in its fishery. Um, You're not necessarily targeting huge fish, but it's you know seven weight territory catching them on top water so in terms of traveling you know like africa's fairly well set up to handle people who are going on safari i mean have been doing for you know long 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 time so it's pretty well set up there it's safe like anywhere you got your head screwed on straight you'll be fine you know um that's i think something that people should all realize when you travel anywhere you know you can get mugged in London, you can get mugged in Sydney, you can get mugged in New York, and you can be totally fine in Cape Town. But if you do, you know, go to the right places with the right people and just pay attention, it's totally safe and uh, and a lot of fun. More people yeah. should do it. And so when you were younger, when you finished school, I think I saw somewhere that you shipped off to the Caribbean for a bit and spent a bit of time there. Yeah, yeah, I kind of, uh, I went to the University of Life in Grand Cayman. Um, <laughs> Yeah, my, yeah, I think bless my folks, you know, despite coming from a a pretty um, well-educated family, you know, everybody went to university and whatnot, they kind of realized that they'd be pissing away money, sending me to university or forcing me to go to university straight off to school. And there wasn't a a fishing university. So the closest I could get to sort of, I said to my folks, I want to live on a tropical island. And, uh, my dad says, well, you know, you got to work when you get on a tropical island. What are you going to do? I said, well, be a dive instructor and a boat captain. So that's kind of what I did. I did my scuba diving instructors um, and instructor trainers and whatever and got my, my uh, skipper's ticket and captain's license and bloody blah, blah. And then shipped off to, yeah, Grand Cayman when I was 18. And that's lived unreal. Five years. Yeah, it was fun. I got to chase tarpon and bonefish and snapper and grouper and wahoo and shit like that pretty much every day. So yeah, go to work, play, I sort of, I mean, I ran, ended up just running a Stingray City boat, which is just run, taking people out to snorkel and play with Stingrays and wrestle Stingrays, which is what I did for the last three years. 
I usually finish work about three o'clock, come home, play some backgammon, uh, play a bit of hacky sack. And then once the sun got low enough and be like, cool, go and take the three weight down to the little uh, mosquito control ditches in the mangroves and bang out a couple baby tarpon on the three weight until you got eaten by mosquitoes and then come home and wash, rinse, repeat for three years. It was good. Good times. <laughs> That's all. I think for some people too, like even myself, when I was younger, uni just wasn't for me. And I think it's good that if you can go off, do a bit of travel and figure out what you want to do instead of just doing a degree yeah. that you'll probably never use and just pissing away money. Um, it is good to get some life experience. Yeah. And I mean, look, I think, you know, that it was that certainly was relevant when, when I was that age. I mean, I'm 42 now. But I mean, I think nowadays even more so, um, you know, there's there's jobs around and that didn't exist three years ago so now you must go and study for five years and it's just going to be obsolete for some people if you know what you want to do go and do it i knew i wanted to go fishing and and live in the caribbean and and be a pirate which so i'm stoked i got to got to do that was good times yeah and after that you did a bit of time in canada was it or yeah yeah i shipped off to um yeah I stripped off to Canada. My my uh, ex girlfriend at the time had moved to Canada. She needed to go back to university, so I cruised over. Um, yeah, and I went from living on a, a flyspeck island that was twenty two miles long by nine miles wide to driving across Canada it was quite a an eye opener. Um, so I basically flew into Montreal and then we road tripped right the way across Canada because uh, she was going to the University of Victoria. Uh, which is on Vancouver Island on the extreme west coast, just off Vancouver. Ended up living there for about five or six months, uh, chasing salmon and whatnot and cutthroat trout and that sort of stuff. And then, uh, yeah, the call of Africa just kind of called me back home, you know. So and I've been back in Cape Town now for about 18 years. Yeah. And so what are you actually doing for a living these days? Like I know you've got a production background and that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, so I'm a... <clears throat> I own a production company with my sister. Um, we're a, we started off as a stills company, uh, so producing photo shoots, uh, typically for the the fashion and um, advertising industry. Internationally, um, we don't really work for any locals, but a lot of folks come to. It's a, it's a big industry here in Cape Town, you know, with the the weather and the environment and the the locations that we have. Um, a lot of folks like to travel here to shoot over the Northern Hemisphere winter because we've got nice weather and we've got nice locations. We've got pretty people. So, and then over the last probably 10 years or so, we've moved into doing both stills and motion. So TV commercials, print campaigns, uh, and a mix of both. <clears throat> so for, yeah, typically for, yeah, car shoots, fashion, advertising, power, telecoms, pharmaceuticals, whoever and whatever, they pay the bills. So, how, like, did you sort of just pick up a camera one day and start delving into that, like, just self-taught, or how did you actually? Um, my actually, my sister's ex-boyfriend, uh, he he started the company that my sister and I now own, um, and my sister was waitressing after she'd finished uni. I mean, it's perfect example, like we were saying about doing something at uni and wasting it. My sister did a, a bachelor of science degree in zoology and botany. She's an incredibly smart lady. And uh, she's never once since used it because she met her ex-boyfriend when she was waitressing after she finished uni. And he said, well, don't you want to try and just work in production? He just started a production company and she just jumped into it. 
Um, and when I came back from the Caribbean, I just pretty much jumped in and started as a runner. And then thought I was going to be a photographer. Um, I started studying photography briefly. Um, and uh, I got the opportunity then to go and work. I was, you know, going to work on a shoot, uh, month-long swimwear shoot in Mauritius. Tough um, job. So I dropped, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of, So I, I sort of was like, mm, yeah, okay, I'm going to drop out of photo school and go and work as a photo assistant instead, you know, like practical onset training. So I did a month in Mauritius. And then I've sort of just worked my way up from there until we bought the company 10 years ago. So I've been doing it for a fairly long time now, I guess. Um, yeah. And it's one of those things that you, you just learn as you go along. Uh, well, I certainly did. But yeah, uh, it's it's a fun world to be involved in. It's It drives me absolutely batshit, like anybody's job drives them batshit at times. But uh, on the flip side, and like my mother always says, at least your job is never boring. So it never is. Um, it's challenging, but it's never boring. Yeah, okay. And for anyone that's looked at your Instagram account too, it's clear to see that you've fished some unreal places like the Seychelles, so like big bus-sized GTs, bonefish, permit milkfish. Um, when did you first start hosting trips and is that how Them Lucky Bastards was started or? Yeah, I got, I mean, I got, uh, look, I have been, I've been very fortunate and Instagram certainly can make uh, a lot of people's lives look a bit, a lot, or their fish look bigger or more of them. But uh, no, I've been very fortunate, like, you know, to where we are situated here, the, the fact that probably the greatest flats fishery in the world, um, so both Seychelles and St. Brandon's are closer to us than pretty much anybody else. Um, they're extremely expensive locations to go and fish, unfortunately, but at least being relatively close by in South Africa, we're not also adding massive flight costs, etc., on top of all of those things. So I have been very fortunate to get out to those parts of the parts of the world fairly often in the last, well, not, certainly not in the last two years, but in the, the couple of years before that. And, they're you know incredible destinations, incredibly well-run guarding setups um, that we fished with out there, and I guess then Lucky Bosses just came about with myself and and Platon Trikosius, who, who's a buddy I met through fishing, and turns out, and you know when we met, we did a tra- sort of pony trekking trip through Lesotho, um, which is a mountain kingdom here, and basically did a, a week of. Uh, walking up rivers there with some mountain ponies carrying all of our shit. Um, and turns out he owns a production company as well. And turns out he lives like 100 meters down the road from me. And turns out that he also went to school with my cousins in Zimbabwe. So it's like this really sort of small world of people. But both of us having done trips and Pla's wife also works in the sort of boutique travel industry. Um, we kind of thought it would be a good idea to start looking into an all-inclusive looking after of people <clears throat> you know you go on these trips and they they are high end i mean the money that you're paying is very high end when you're going to places like Seychelles and st brandon's and and anywhere else in the world really where you're paying top dollar and there's often a you know as well run as the trip can be there's we thought that there's space for somebody to come in and take over the start to finish side of things um, whether it's just managing people's travels and managing people's expectations, uh, putting essentially that's where we got with lucky bastards in wanting to host rather than, you know, we're not a guiding operation. We plot us some local guiding here. Um, so for trout and carp and things like that, we will guide for here in, in South Africa. But, um, the bulk of what we wanted to do is try and create 
an all-in-one setup where people is, are as well looked after from when they leave their house rather than just when they arrive on the fishing trip. And there's a lot of stuff that can be lost in that middle section of travel and organizing and get everything put together, which almost comes naturally for us because that's what we do for production in terms of building photo shoots. And, you know, Plot comes from, he's more from documentaries and feature films and TV commercial background. And I'm more from the sort of high end fashion stills background. And there's all these little nitty gritty pieces that we sort of thought, having done a lot of trips, what I would love to have additional to that. And especially for folks who don't have a hell of a lot of time and they've got time off, they just want to be taken care of. Um, and I think it's also putting the right people together on trips. Um, a big part of, for me, fishing trips, yes, of course, the fishing, you know, um, that's what you're there for. And I know it sounds like a broken record. Oh, it's not about the fish. At the end of the day, it's not about the fish because if it's only about the fish, if you if the fishing's shit, you can have a shit, you'll have a shit trip. But I've had shit fishing and epic trips because of the people and the attitude and the the camaraderie or the adventure or whatever it is. And so we're trying to sort of curate that and make sure that the right people handled in the right way. No matter what happens with the fishing, you're going to have a good time and have a good find trip. that compatibility and just make sure everyone's going to get along and have a good time. <laughs> exactly. Or you know, I mean, it's people don't always get along and it's you know like my job on set a lot of the time as a producer is managing all of those people's personalities and i'm dealing with very uh sometimes quite obnoxious creatives or whatever and it's finding a way to be the person that manages all of them and makes them all fit together and it's you know it's something that as a producer it has to come naturally because i don't have a hell of a lot of time to deal with these egos bumping against each other but i can't tell everybody to shut up because they're all getting paid a lot more than I am. So it's a, you know, and you can't tell a guest or clients on a, on a fishing trip or whatever it is to be like, you know, listen, you're being an asshole, shut up and go sit in the corner. They've paid their money. They also should, they, they deserve to have a good time. So it's managing people and managing how this, how the trip is run that everybody can have a good time and gets the best out of it, which is what the aim of Lucky Bastards is. And I guess there's a lot of people out there that they might be in a, a highly strung job, that sort of thing, where they might only get a week or two a year where they can actually get away from the family and just have yeah, a week to themselves going fishing. So they're the sort of guys that go, can you organize it, make sure everything runs fine so that I can just go unwind and have a great time? Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of these, and it's, um, you know, t Tim Babich, who's um, the head guard from Flycast always, um, and head guard at... Uh, on Providence Atoll in Seychelles. He said like something quite similar to that, going like, you know, some of the guys that come and fish with them are multi, multi, multi millionaires who run massive companies. You know, they've got thousands of employees. They can, they've got some serious money, but they choose and they don't have a lot of time off and they choose to come and spend their week or whatever it is chasing fish with you on the ocean. And these guys are used to telling 10,000 people what to do every day. And they come, that's their choice to sort of take a break from all of that. And the more that you can, I mean, it's a big thing for a lot of people. It's even for folks where the money is not the issue. It's the time, you know, so it's just as important for that guy to have a good time as it is for the guy who saved for 20 years. And this is the only time he's going to do that one trip. The, 
although both of them are coming from different backgrounds. The one guy could afford to do 20 trips a year, but doesn't have the time. Yeah, just time, Paul. Sort of time is just as important as the one guy that's only ever going to do one trip in his life, that they are treated in a way that allow, you know, that's their time, that they have, it's important. Um, and how to manage those things, you know, and, and Tim Mo also said, it's like you, these guys can have been all over the place. They've been everywhere in the world, but you go into their offices in these Fortune 500 companies, there's a picture of the guy and his family. And then the next picture is the guy and his, his fish that he caught on the trip with you. So the importance of that is, should never be undersold, you know, and uh, I think if you're being paid to take people fishing or to host trips or whatever it is, the the respect that you've got to give to people that are paying their money and giving up their time to entrust you uh, or your company or whatever it is, the guiding setup to take good care of them, I think is incredibly important. Um, and I think the more you can take off people while having to worry about stuff that they can just concentrate on having a good time. Yeah. The better you are at your job, I reckon. Yeah. And comparing the two sort of places like the Seychelles and St. Brandon's, what sort of, um, what are the main points of difference there and what are the fisheries like? Um, so, so St. Brandon's is based out of uh, Mauritius. It's quite a lot further south. The water is significantly colder. Um, so what you don't have is this crazy uh, smorgasbord variety of fish. Like Seychelles, where it is, is just, you know, Providence, for example, every coral head has got either a big trout or a big boho snapper or red bass, we guys call them, or some other weird thing living on it. There's bumpies, there's triggers, there's bonefish, there's obviously lots of jeets. Um, there's big Napoleons, there's yellow-lipped emperors, there's blue spangled emperors. There's a lot of shit going on. St. Brandon's, on the other hand, is a little bit colder. Um, well, actually, the water's significantly colder, but what it really does have is the most insane bonefish, or bone fishery, I would say, without question, on the planet. Um, huge numbers of permit, and also big jeets. So not as many jeets, um, and they're definitely very different to the ones on say and the, one, the fish on socials generally, if you can get a fly within 10 meters of them and keep it moving, they're probably going to eat it. Whereas the fish on St. Brandon's significantly bigger fish, but you've got to finesse them a little bit more. Um, the big jeets there. I have a, yeah, I've got a, I really need to get back to St. Brandon's because I have a, a score to settle with some very big GTs there that have eaten and just somehow missed the fly. And, you know, um, so I've got to go back just for that. It's also some Brandon's visually is incredible. Just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. It's more colors of blue than you'll see anywhere. So I love it for that fact. It's pretty wild. It's, it's typically fairly windy, um, which is what keeps all these just giant bonefish and, and fresh water just rushing over the atoll. Um, and the, the bones are huge. And you can catch them in literally their eyes are sticking out the water. It's so shallow. Um, but your know, average bonefish on some bees is probably six, seven pounds. Um, and you will see 10s and 12s and 14s and 16s. Don't necessarily catch them. But you'll, you know, you'll get shots at a 10-pound bonefish virtually every day. And then there's just massive numbers of permit as well, Indo-Pacific permit, so the blocky. Um, again, they don't get huge, but there's lots of them. So you get lots of shots, which is nice because you kind of 
you get out of your permit jitters. Um, it took me like eight days to get over my permit jitters. When the guards kept just telling me, dude, just pretend it's a five pound bonefish, you know, hit it on its fucking head. If you either going to hook it or spook it. So, you know, um, but when you've never caught perms before, you kind of still think, no, I, can't, I, don't, I don't want to spook it. You know, I'll, I'll drift the fly in and by then the fish is gone, you know? So, um, and then Seychelles, on the other hand, is is just yeah. I mean, Seychelles is Seychelles. There's lots been written about it and, and videos and and pictures. But specifically for me, like I love Providence um, Atoll because it's the last of the mothership only operations. There's no there's no lodge on the atoll. Um, it's totally totally deserted. Uh, it's huge. It's still to this day probably only maybe 60% of it's been fished just because access is virtually impossible. It's not like a, your classic, beautiful ring atoll. It's a big seamount virtually that comes up and this homogenous blob of turtle grass and coral and shit everywhere. And I mean, I, whenever we fish out there and, uh, you sort of, it's big and you zooming and now you're in the middle of the atoll, so to speak. And you can't see there's no point of reference, no land reference anywhere, you know, like northeast, southwest, you can't see anything. It looks like a world sort of bending as you look at the horizon. And I always think to my, the, the guides, it amazes me how they know where the fuck they are. There's no GPS, nothing. And I'm like, dude, I was lost 15 minutes ago. Now I'm really <laughs> lost, you know. But then, you know, then, a, then you'll see a triggerfish tail or a bumpy tail or a pot of jeets come cruising and you just stop giving a shit and, and get out and cast. So variety-wise, um, Seychelles just delivers like nowhere else, man. And if you want to catch GTs on fly, you'd be hard-pressed to find a, a better place for it, I reckon. It's certainly in terms of numbers. Yeah, okay. Are you mainly fishing 12 weights for the Jeets there? or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty much exclusively, yeah. Yeah, okay. And do you have yeah, any I mean, tips? Can... Like... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, do you have any tips for the um, like anyone that was looking at a trip to the Seychelles, whether it's like gear selection, reels, or anything like that? Obviously, something that's going to put up to the rigor of being in a pretty harsh environment day in, day out, or whether it comes to rods or fly lines or anything like that. I think the the most important factor, <clears throat> certainly on the flats in the Indian Ocean, is uh, is going to be your reels that they can handle being wet all day. Um, I fish almost exclusively uh, the old Hardy Fortunas, the X-Series, the X-2s and X-3s. But there are a lot of reels out there these days that can get the job done. Um, But I think it's just important that you're focusing on or trying, making sure that you're taking a reel along that can handle being in the salt because you typically, 90% of the time, you're wade fishing. I mean, that's the attraction for me. I don't want to be in an environment like that and fishing from a boat ideally i want to be waiting so you're waiting you're swimming through gullies and everything you've typically got a 12 weight or a nine weight strapped to your bag and then you're carrying your other rod so that that reel is going to get wet all day every day for a week so if you've got a drag that can't handle getting wet you're going to have problems so for me that's the best you know the biggest thing is to like you know, people do the research um, or I see the question pop up on, on Facebook or wherever it is, people asking, you know, like, what's the best reel for GTs and stuff? And people who have never fished for them, who fish a totally different fishery, putting, going like, this is definitely the best option. I'm like, yeah, I don't know, man. I, w- I wouldn't ask a GT fisherman for advice on what the best tarpon 
reel is or the tarpon line or whatever it is. You know, if, I'd ask somebody who fishes for tarpon. And I think people need to just pay attention to that and see what the people who are doing it, the guides that are what they're using out there. Um, and people, a lot of, I've seen a lot of guys are, oh, you need 400 meters of backing. <laughs> Fuck off do you need 400 meters of backing. If a GT takes 60 meters of backing, he's gone. He gone. You're going to lose him. So don't get so obsessed with that. Um, fly lines, there's a lot on the market these days. Eh? Uh, you know, it's, it, I find it hard to keep up. Um, What's your opinion on to- like welded loops versus like creating your own connection sort of thing? Yeah, like? or definitely make your own, eh? Yeah. Um, yeah, just, you know, a fairly, it's not, not a difficult thing to do. You know, three nail knots, loop it around three nail knots, a little bit of super glue and away you go. It doesn't have to be pretty for jeets. It just needs to be strong. But uh, also fly lines, you know, there's, we went down this, these new hundred pound core, no stretch fly line routes as well, which thought, okay, that's really going to help us out. Um, because you can put as much pressure as you need to, you know, fishing 130 or 150 um, pound liters, straight eight feet, eight, nine feet of 150 pound fluoro or 130 pound fluoro. Um, and thinking, okay, we want to hit and hold if you are actually going to try and keep a fish away from the bricks, like a big cheat. We're talking, you know, like 120 plus. And we just started straightening hooks because fly hooks not really designed for that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, that's a balance of that as well. And, I think it's something that you learn the more you go out there. Sometimes you do need to hit and hold those fish. You know, you've got no option. Something's either going to pop. It's either the fish or you or the, or the tackle. But I think if you're a smarter angler, you don't need to put as much pressure as we originally thought we did. Um, but yeah, so just be careful of those hundred pound fly lines. Um, they work bloody well, but just be careful. You know, if you, if you've got a hook that can't handle the pressure, you're going to straighten the hooks. Um, what are you running hook-wise, like an ARX SA280 or are you running a... Um... So now, I mean, I've, I've straightened a lot of hooks, but I've also got a lot of big fish on, on, this, on those very same hooks. Uh, and also from like, you know, seeing the kind of stuff that we're straightening on, on po- like conventional popping gear and straightening out 13-0, you know, just giant ass jigging hooks. Any hook can straighten if it's in the wrong sort of situation or the wrong t- um, position in the fish's mouth. So traditionally, we were pretty much SL12s, you know, across the board um, until uh, then fish the odd, uh, what is that, uh, like owner Akis as well. Um, it's a big heavy hook. The trick, unfortunate side of the things is penetration with a flower, you know, being able to actually set the hook. So, you know, using, thinking about using big heavy jigging hooks and stuff for strength, not really an option just because you can't bury the point very well. And now I'm pretty much exclusively on, yeah, ARX SA 270s. Um, 270s. I yeah. really like, yeah, I really like, I wish they made the 280 bigger because that minnow hook, I love the shape of that thing. Um, yeah, I got my I pattern mixed jig- up just then. <laughs> no, no, the, I mean, they both, like I said, if they did make the 280 a little bigger, I'd be very happy. Um, Giovanni De Pace, um, the Italian uh, fly tire, yeah, phenomenal. Chat to him a lot, and yeah, he's a freak of nature, that guy. Um, but I chat to him a lot, and he, he that the SA280 is actually his design on the hook, so I'm hoping that they're going to get a bigger one. But the the 270 is about as close to perfect as I've found. Um, also, just tested one pretty extensively in Oman, not so much on the fish, but in terms of um, like corrosion resistance. 
and I had one a big bulkhead uh, tied on the 8.0, which is, you know, sat in the salt and in the wind and in the salt and in the wind and in the salt and in the wind for two weeks. Um, and that's a very salty environment in Oman and a very warm, windy one and all of my conventional hooks rusted. And that thing is perfect, man. Looks bloody brand new, which is good. So, yeah, I think the Arex is like I still use a lot of um, Gemakatsu SL11s and SL12s, more mm. so for high turnover flies like Clouses that I know will get chewed up. Sure. Um, but yep. I've started using the Arexes a lot just for the um, corrosion resistance, basically. Plus, they're super, super sharp and they make some pretty, um, pretty good patterns as well. Yeah, that's no, a, I mean, it's a, it's a really rad hook. Um, pretty excited about the, the new saltwater jig hook that they've just brought out for crabs and, and shrimps and stuff like that. It's just landed here in South Africa. I haven't actually checked them, but a couple of buddies have been tying on them. Um, also seen, you know, guys like Rue Harvey has been checking them out and tying on them and they look bloody good. Uh, it's nice to have a, a small, tough jig hook, uh, that I can trust in saltwater. The problem also for us, we found was SL11, no, SC15, which is another superb book, the Gamma SC15, the 5 I believe has been discontinued, yeah, which okay. is pretty sad because that was also, um, you know, that that's a strong-ass hook and a fantastic GT hook. Yeah. But, you know, they look like they'd stopped making them, which is a bit of a pisser. Yeah, okay. And with um, fishing places like the Seychelles and chasing big jeets and that, is that when your obsession with bucktail started? Because, like, yeah. you tie some of the nicest, like, not pissing in your pocket there, mate, but you tie some of the nicest beast flies and hollows and, yeah, not all true. that sort of thing. Yeah, that's very kind of you to say. I certainly, um, I got majorly obsessed with it. So when we, it would have been when I think uh, just before... My second trip to uh, to to Providence, um, my buddy Warwick was joining, and uh, we started tying up some bits and pieces. And at the same time, um, Pla, uh, Pla, my buddy, which, uh, my partner in them, Lucky Bastards, gave me Popovich's latest book. I think it's Fly Design. It's called Fly Design. Yeah, I was reading it last yeah, night. So, <laughs> It's a, I mean, it, as with most, you know, I had the original one as well. I think Pop Flowers, it was called. Um, and that was all, you know, synthetics based and, and epoxy and all of that. And whereas the new one is, is very much Bob going, I guess, back to his roots almost and is very bucktail focused. And we started, you know, big flower, big fish and did see the, the results of that in a way as well um, on that second trip, throwing big pretty big flies to pretty big fish so i thought okay we wanted to go down this road of uh of of finding good bucktail and then just tying beast flies you know and tying bigger flies that are castable and it just became a flat out obsession one yeah you know, it's a pretty deep hole that i've went down um but it's been something that i've 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 enjoyed the journey and i've been very lucky to learn from um obviously from trial and error um, but also from some truly exceptional fly ties. Um, guys like Rue Harvey, uh, Ben Wally in the States. You know, if you really want to see somebody tie a beast fly, Ben is a freak. I don't know if you know him or you should check him out on Instagram. I've, like I've watched um, a lot of Gunnar Brammer's videos and Paul Monaghan yeah. and those guys, yeah. and there's definitely some talent out there. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I'm lucky when a sort of a, a chat group, a WhatsApp chat group with Paulie, uh, Rue, 
Ben's on there. Jason Taylor, you know, he's like one of like Bob's accolades, basically. Um, who, you know, and then I've I've gone like through the whole size, get, getting it as big as possible to shape, you know, like stuff that I learned from specifically from from Jason, like his the aesthetic of what his flowers look like with that sort of flatter top and a little bit more of a teardrop razor belly. Like for me, just looks right, and I've kind of moved in that direction to try and find that's what I want to tie you know so yeah I, I burned through a lot a lot of premium bucktail I mean we we shipped in 122 tails a buddy of ours muled these <laughs> muled them through the border because they wouldn't ship them so he was on a, a work <laughs> trip to the states and and carried them back through for us very kindly and didn't get searched um but yeah look I, in terms of you know anybody listening who wants to go down that road and tie bucktails is like if you're wanting to tie beasts and things is is learn with shit bucktail. Don't waste yeah. the good stuff on on learning. I mean, I made that mistake and I've got some very average beasts hanging on my wall that have got the nicest bucktail on them, but I probably would never fish them because the rest of the fly, you know, the actual fly is shit. So I'm probably going to cut, I mean, I'm now that I'm running low on bucktail again, I'm going to cut it up and go back and, and cut those beasts up and, and try and reuse or recycle that bucktail. But yeah, I, I definitely have gone down the route of trying to find like trying to make the biggest, longest flies possible um, that are still castable. And yeah, I haven't found anything better than a beast really in that in terms of that. And it's a fun fly to tie, and it's a you certainly learn a lot of like thread control and material control and what you can do um, with bucktail and adding the odd bit of synthetic in here and there. But now these days I'm all, I'm all about the bulkhead. Eh? I haven't tied a beast in in a while, um, but now it's just bulkheads, 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 man. I love that fly more than anything. I just love what you can do with it, just for its water pushing abilities and that sort of thing. Or yeah, shape. You know, I mean, and you know, messing around with it again, like I was talking about that sort of shape where you've got a like I'll look at a mullet for example. You know, um, they're if you look at them from the side, they're pretty flat on top you know and then they have that the, the belly drops down at the, the front of the of the fish's well, i guess the underside of the jaw and stuff and you get that very much uh like a flat profile on the top and then a rounded belly and whatnot and you can when you're messing around with bulkheads like tying you know on the top and on the bottom or around or only three quarters of the way around with some of your bulkheads you can build that shape really easily and it's I don't know, it's just something that I enjoy when I'm at the vice is, is getting those shapes and patterns together. And again, being able to tie a massive pattern, that's a very easy cast and pushes water. Yeah, the illusion of bulk, but it's still easy to cast. And I guess like having books like Pop Flies and Fly Design, it's a great base for people to use it as like a, a textbook to reference and go back Absolutely. on. Um, even how to trim the bucktail on a, on a skin basically and... And then you've also got the YouTube side of it now. So like Bob's the OG and his books have started pretty much everyone off that I know that's like an exceptional bucktail tire. But then on YouTube as yep. well, it's sort of, you've got all the guys like Gunnar Brammer and Paul Monhan and even yourself with, I watched a couple of videos, one where you use like your money bump technique. Um, yeah. And it is so good for fast tracking people because I know certain people will learn better from just looking at a book and instructions, but others are a bit more mm. visual in the sense that they need to see the actual step-by-step -step and, 
it is um yeah incredible having the youtube aspect as well while you're learning and it's it's rocketed things you know and it, i think it's you know some people are like oh but you you, you know you, you only really learn your lessons if you learn them yourself you know those are the ones that stick but which in many respects is true i think you you definitely learn more by making the mistakes yourself or making the successes yourself but like gunner's series on like his sort of beginner series on predator tying or on bucktail tying is even for somebody who has tied for a long time um i went back and watched those and it's like shit you know he learned these little tiny tricks he's an incredibly good teacher especially that er, the his sort of um early series on techniques bucktail deer hair all of that stuff thread tension and things is amazing to because it gives you the confidence to go like okay let me try this again and then you learn you know you really you start picking things up quicker because you've watched them and you learn and you you don't make the mistakes as often but you start getting to success a little bit quicker which is great because it's confidence building and so you try more and you get stuck in more um and yeah like you say like paul monahan <laughs> i love it because paul he's always i love his videos and i always tease him about it too because He's always like, yeah, no, it's just really simple. You know, you just don't, you know, you don't have to do much. Just, it doesn't have to be tidy. You know, it can be a little, and then you look at his end product. You're like, dude, that fly is perfect. There's not a single fiber out of place. And then I go and try and tie some of his patterns that he makes look so, so easy. I think he's got one, I can't remember if it's a firecracker or what it's called, but it's, it's basically tied on a jig hook with a cone. Yeah. Um, and I know which one you're talking I about. I think it's yeah. all it's all Nyat. I was like, man, that thing will slay smallmouth bass here. It's perfect for us because we're fishing rocky structure. Um, it'll be great. Keep it out of the, you know, the tied hook point up, nice and heavy, get down to the bottom. I've tried to tie that thing like 10 times. It's not easy. You know, he makes it look so easy. He's like, yeah, you just do this. And yeah, just don't worry about that. And then fucking hell, Paulie. So yeah, it's uh, the illusion, but those guys, you know, there's, there's some incredibly talented tires out there and it, it is great to have, uh, like you say, YouTube and Facebook, Instagram, even, um, as a reference point to just see what people are doing from a technique point of view, but also from an inspiration point of view, you know, um, that's also part of why I wanted to tie big beasts and I saw Ben Whaley's, uh, flowers. I was just like, man, I just want one of those things. Never mind fish with it i just want to hold it and put it up on my shelf or something so i've actually got some bob popovich originals um for my 40th birthday um some buddies organized flies from from all over i've got uh kelly galoop triple dungeon tied by kelly um, i've got one of pat cohen's crazy uh deer hair masterpieces and then uh yeah peter could see organized a uh, from bob popovich so i've got a, an original bob beast i've got an original uh, uh surf candy uh and a bulkhead and a bucktail deceiver from him That's all time which is pretty cool yeah i'm stuck very very stoked about those took two years to get to me thanks to COVID, but i got him there's yeah. um a bloke down here pip clement and he ties some really cool like Dahlbergs and that sort of thing, unreal, but like more the artistic side of things, like he'll tie right. a deer hair permit or like a platypus. Oh, really? or a, yeah, yeah, like check him out on Facebook or Instagram. Some of his stuff is so creative. I think I actually might follow him already. What's his handle? Uh, Pip Clement is his name. And some of the yeah, stuff Clement, he puts. Clement Pip, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I checked him. He's, yeah, he's got like a little kingfisher recently. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's he's, proper he's, artwork, eh? 
he's a dude that like he can tie that really artistic stuff but then ties flies that absolutely slay fish and he's fished all over the world like he's chased tigers he's been to Papua New Guinea chasing black bass um wow. so just yeah one of those guys that can tie a fly that's gonna catch a fish but if you want something for your wall in your office he's yeah just ridiculous he's got like that, that too yeah yeah that's cool though I think um, one of the other flies that you've been tying I thought was pretty cool was the Mighty Ugandan. I came across the SBS mm. for that in the Mission Fly Mag. So how did that fly come about? And do you want, Can you just explain for people that haven't seen it before how it's made up? Um, yeah, sure. It's a, we were, it was kind of at the same time that we were doing, wanting to look into like big flies and bulk and things like that. We were prepping for uh, a Providence trip, myself and, and my buddy Warwick Leslie, and tying and we, I don't know, again, I think we brought in a bunch of, um, for tying flexos, we brought in a bunch of, you know, the flexo tubing and we got it in different sizes and different colors. And then sort of we're on Instagram or Facebook, we're checking out Blaine chocolates, um, like T-bone flowers, these massive musky flowers, Blaine from Game Changer fame. Yeah. And him using, um, you know, this, that tubing, to as a thread dam basically to hold bolt stuff back and and build up uh, flare and control flare and i think it was warwick who might have like put it on the front of a flower while we were looking playing going like oh this might actually work you know like something like this and we just adapted it as a mashup of hackles and and deer hair or has, sorry hackles and bucktail and a brush in there and whatnot and basically wanted to find something that had a big head that wouldn't collapse. Um, and that was tough. And that first time that we took them over there, we ha I happened to have one on at some point that had a black and purple one. And standing next to Warwick, he had a black and purple flower, but not the, not the Ugandan, not with that big head. And I think I outfished him. Like I had 10 fish and he couldn't buy a bite. And we were literally standing right next to each other, casting into the sort of coral lagoon on the coral head. And I was just going red, you know, big boho snapper, big trout, boho trout, boho, boho. And he couldn't buy a bite. And we've since tested it on from there. And it, it's a pattern that just works, man. I don't know why. And it's, it's certainly not new. It's basically, it's a, a brush fly or a deceiver or something um, mashed up together. And then it's got this reversed, um, tubing, plain chocolate tubing, which just creates this nice big bulky head. Um, stays nice and light, easy to cast. And for some reason, the fish around the coral heads just love that thing. And yeah, so we tied up a bunch more for the next trip and we caught a hell of a lot of fish on them. So um, it's a very, it's it's not certainly not a, a new pattern or new idea, I don't think. Um, but maybe I we hadn't seen it put together the way that we did. Probably just a culmination um, of materials and techniques. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Certainly not something that was invented by us, um, but the way it was put together for that trip and subsequently has been used a lot. We uh, we'd never sort of see, neither of us had seen before that exact same pattern, so we just you know uh, tried it and worked. And I might even um, on the Facebook page for the podcast. I'll share the link for that SBS because it's quite huh. quite well detailed. Like basically the tails, bucktail, and some saddle hackle, then your brush midsection, and then it's a couple yep. of bulkhead ties, isn't it, towards the front, and then yeah, flexo tubing reversed. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, that one as well is probably is a bit overdressed, I would say. Um, like most flowers, when you're learning to tie them, you put too much stuff on them. You know, at that point, I hadn't tied like 100 of them. I'd probably only tied like 10. Um, and I would probably simplify it quite a lot now, but it does give you the basic premise and idea of what you're looking for in that fly. Um, Rue Harvey ties them uh, as well now, and his are perfect. I mean, the way he ties his are bloody brilliant. Um, should actually, I think he might have a video of tying it. But yeah, it's a it's not a difficult pattern. There's just a few little tricks, especially that head. Getting that head right is is takes a little bit of practice, I guess. But it's uh, thankfully it's a big fly, so it's a little bit forgiving. And I guess that um, the flexo tubing would protect all the tie-in points as well, which for durability, when you're yeah. fishing those sort of areas, you really need it. Otherwise, the fly is just getting trashed after a few fish. Yeah, especially if you're bombing bashing, you know, where you 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 throwing flies and potentially catching. 10 fish in an hour or 10 fish in half an hour um, and they've all got teeth and they're all nasty, you know, like the, the, all your snapper species and, and things like that. They, they rip a fly up. They really do. They damage the hell out of it. So like you said, it is nice to have something that's tough because that thing is tough with that head. It really does protect all those tying points fantastically. So, I mean, I've still got all of mine, um, you know, that are still fishable and then some have taken you know, a hundred fish and are still fishable and fine. A couple of them being retired because the hooks have been straightened, but you know, it's a, it's a very tough, uh, pattern pushes water. And there's something about the way it, I don't know if it's something about the way it rides in the water with that head. If you get it right, the, the density or the, the buoyancy of it just seems to work. Yeah. Worth having in your box for sure. Yeah. Okay. And you recently just got back from a um, trip to Oman as well, chasing some of those massive brim over there. Did you want to talk a bit about that trip? Oh, man, I love that place. I have missed it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I mean, I've, I've been going, I think this is my eighth trip um, to No Boundaries. Uh, and I used to go every year or sometimes twice a year. Uh, but I haven't been since 2017, we figured it out, it was the last, last time I was there when... Um, Actually, Brooksy did that the video where we slept on the island and got eaten by rats, and it was sort of the first dedicated, well, not dedicated, but sort of push to land GTs off the stones there uh, on conventional gear. Uh, so it was it was amazing to be back, and also amazing to have the bream fishery just turn on fire because I first encountered those things like ten years ago when I first went over there. I think one of my first or second days there and I'd seen pictures and as a South African, we have like what you guys call brim or bream, you know, we have a yeah. very similar, um, well, we have, I'm pretty sure it's the same species almost. You can actually check with Delvin and Brett. I don't know. They certainly would have caught a bunch of them in our little estuaries where, where I grew up, <clears throat> the perch, we call them perch. And the Omani bream just, I mean, just gets massive and it looks like a muscle cracker which is another fish that we have here that i'm kind of you know obsessed about which is very much like a rock and surf species lives in the wash called the muscle cracker it eats shells and gnarly thing but it also just does things that it looks like it's not supposed to like hunts in packs and smashes poppers just loves poppers um and fights hard and looks gnarly and and then on the flip side, you can find them on the flats in the surf um, and target them on crabs, you know, and they're a little bit more spooky there. And so it's just a, it's a fun ass fish, man. And it was nice to have them 
turn on and just be there in big numbers and, and smashing fish or smashing lures and flies. I love yeah. those things. It was really good, but I mean, Oman is one of my favorite places in the world, you know, especially as someone who's both a fly angler and a regular spin fisherman. Um, I just like to be throwing something, you know, and the variety of species there and the environments you can target fish in there is just incredible. You know, yeah. everything's big. It's like the Texas of the ocean. It's just everything's bigger and better, man. It's, you know, this last trip, we, the first week, I was there for two weeks. The first week uh, on the conventional side, 63 GTs landed, five over 60 kilos, 15 over 50. Uh, we lost 30 odd, you know, I mean, just big, big, big animals, man. Um, That's ridiculous. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was on the bar. I, sadly for me, con on the conventional side, uh, none of the big jeets that I hooked stuck. Um, I pulled hooks on two fish and I got garfished by another two. Um, the long toms, they're massive and you know how they love a bubble. Tight line. <laughs> when you're hooked onto a fish and you see a, a long tom coming from like 40 meters away, bing, 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 jump, 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 and jump, like a freaking guillotine right through your line. Um, but... Yeah, I saw, I was on the boat for some just truly enormous animals, you know, just to see a jeet of that size is, is quite a thing. And it's also a place where, you you know, it's going to take some time uh, and a hell of a lot of luck, but it's definitely doable to at least hook one of those big jeets from the shore there on fly. So yeah. um, I saw one, he was just, by the time I saw him, he was probably 40 meters ahead of me going away from me along the cliff. And I, I mean, it was big enough that I could watch him. He then he sort of did a 90 degree turn and swam out to one of the reefs. But I watched that fish for probably 300 meters, maybe more. That's how big he was. I could just watch him swim, you know, a good 50, 55 kilo fish that you can actually present to with your feet on dry land. That's cool, man. I got to do That's it. That's unreal. That's on another level. Happen. Yeah. But it's going to take some time and it's, you know, a fish like that is definitely about being right place at the right time. Um, and is know, Oman and somewhere lucky. that you'll be hosting trips as well? Or is that somewhere that yeah. you just like to go yourself? Uh, a bit of both, eh? I mean, you know, um, but I, I I love being there and I do like looking after people and I like, look, I like making sure that people have a good time, you know. And it helps that um, no boundaries is is owned and run by one of my best mates um in the world ed nicholas and his wife Ange, um and their kids you know, hickson and phoenix these two little frothing fishing machines uh, like, i feel sorry for any gt when those boys get to that like 15 years old they are gonna crush but um they're really crushed but yeah the yeah i'm definitely wanting to take more people out there and also people who you know are open to both fly and spin. And I think also managing that as well, you know, like I think it's a big thing on any fishing trip, you know, the conditions dictate what you should do, you know, and um, you, you read anything written by guide or anything is managing expectations and guides want you to catch fish. Operators want you to catch fish. Hosts want you to catch fish. They don't want you to not catch fish. So if you're not catching fish, it's not because your guard or your host or your operator doesn't want you to, you know, they're trying it. Your work is a lot easier if people are catching fish and they're happy. But the problem is a lot of folks just get like stuck into, and I see it in, in Oman, for example, you know, people like 
obsessed gt 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 it's like man the gt bot is just not on at the moment yeah so the smorgasbord of like light tackle and medium tackle fish there is mental i mean you can cast you can catch fish till your arms fall off but people ignore that and like no i only want to catch gts i only want to fish for gts you're ignoring one of the best fisheries in the world by only focusing on one fish or saying like you know and you hear it from trout guards, guards going, yep, I only want to fish dry flies. It's like, well, you know what? They're not eating dries today, man. You, you're going to cast your ass off all day and be frustrated. Oh, I don't fish nymphs. Well, then you shouldn't probably come and fish this fishery. We're a nymph-based fishery, um, whatever it is, you know. Um, so managing that sort of thing and, and the same with if you've got guys who are keen to throw flies and conventional, for example, and finding a group of the right people to do that um, so that – you might get there and it's blowing 25 knots every day, which on spin gear, not a big deal. You know, yeah. you can still cast 60 meters, even into the wind. But it's a little tough on a fly rod, you know, if it's 25 knots and the fish are always upwind of you. So being able to work with that, and I think that's the rad thing that I'm on, certainly in Ed's operation offers, is that you can do land-based, light tackle, uh, offshore heavy tackle, fly, spin, whatever you want. And a it's such a beautiful place and a unique environment and just a crazy fishery and an incredibly well-run operation. So I think it's good having a few feathers in your cap. Like I know I'm quite happy that if the wind's blowing, I'll pick up a spin rod. Like if we go tuna fishing and it's just blowing a gale or if the sharks are really bad and I go, well, I don't want to get a fly line chopped in half. I'll quite happily chuck totally. a stick bait or a plastic. And I think yeah. a lot of people get too funneled in on, Oh, it, it only counts if I catch it on fly. If you're going to have a great time and like if you're there to catch fish and it's your only day off that you got that month, then go for it. <laughs> I don't care if you caught it on a live boat, man. If you had yeah. fun doing it, yeah, that's what, that's what it's all about. And I think, I mean, like some of the best anglers I know um, are, you know, fly anglers, but come from a very strong conventional fishing backup, um, yeah. especially the rock and surf guys here, you know, the guys who are throwing lures and stuff like that in the surf um, here. It's, it's not easy. And they spend a lot of time working out fisheries and working out conditions and just getting a feel. And they can translate that to their fly fishing. Um, so, yeah, look, I mean, if, if the only way you want to catch it is on fly, that's totally cool. You know, I've got mates that would never pick up a spinning rod, never. Um, now, you know, they obviously at some point, you know, some of them were proper bait fishermen. But now they're exclusively fly and that's totally cool. But they don't also... They don't look down on me because I pick up spin rod every now and again. And I think that's the important thing. So long as you, like you said, if you're willing to roll with the punches and roll with the techniques or like you said, have a couple of feathers and different feathers in your cap, it makes sense because, you know, it's just important to have a good time, I reckon. At the end of the day, whichever way you do it. But I look, I'm always going to want to throw a fly if I can. Um, the only place I'm probably more likely given the choice to pick up a spin rod rather than a fly rod is deep water. I'm not a huge fan of if a fish can swim more than 10 meters down, I'd rather be on a spinning rod just from a fight feel, you know, like uh, the eat and everything like that is amazing on the, on fly and that's pretty much impossible to beat. But uh, I don't know, give me a spinning rod with braid and I can just feel everything, you know, yeah. <laughs> very different on the flats or shallow water than a fly rod is king but I do like to fight a fish fairly hard. Um, so I like the spin rod. 
Yeah. And have you got to experience the permit fishery over there for the, it's the Africanus they get there, isn't it? Well, you get, there's actually three that you get there. Um, so you get the Africanus, um, which is the, the, I think the largest of all the permit species, um, they grow big, you know, like 50 pounds, um, and do weird shit like eat poppers and giant stick baits. And then you get the blocky, um, the Indo-Pacific, and then you get another one, which I've never actually seen. Um, maybe I have seen, but it's quite similar. It's called the, it's called the Mukali or Muliki or Mukali. I've got it in the book. But the main two species that you'd be targeting there are the, the Africanus and the, the blocky. Um, we didn't see any Africanus on this uh, trip, which I was quite surprised by. Conditions were not ideal for them, but we were expecting to see a few tails, but we didn't. Um, saw a few blockies, the Indo-Pacifics, but didn't really have very good shots at them. Um, didn't spend a huge amount of time focused on trying to find them, though, to be honest. Um, they sort of just popped along while we were looking for other things. But, yeah, definitely something I want to try and get stuck into. I mean, uh, I have I hooked one on my first trip there, but on a stick boat. Um, you know, it's mad to watch them. It's you basically up against the cliff faces and it's the rocks under the water and just out of the water. And when the, the swell is washing up onto these mus muscle banks and these perms will swim up with the wash and then tail for like, you know, a group of them, 10, 15, and then tail like crazy for like four or five seconds, chow, trying to chow what's in the muscles before they get washed off again. Um, and it's incredible to watch chaos. And, you know, I flicked a little pink stick, but as these fish were coming off a ledge, I didn't have fly gear back then. I didn't take fly gear. And one of them ate it as it was coming off the ledge and just reefed me immediately. I think I, you know, I, think I was hooked up to it for about 0.6 of a second. I set the hook and it just went off. Um, so I've been pretty obsessed about trying to find one again. Um, but yeah, I'll catch one on the next trip for sure. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a cool fish. And I've seen some big ones. It doesn't, like when you see pictures or videos, it's like you shouldn't be chasing permit. Like you see cliffs and then these fish, they jump and it's completely different to a lot of the it's others. Wild, like, man. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, Johnny Cahill caught one on a 150-gram Ulua stick bait. I mean, it's a big-ass <laughs> stick bait. We were throwing for jeets and the, the queenies are a bit are pretty gale force there. Um, and they're big. But when you're throwing for 50 kilo GTs, a, a, a 15 kilo queenie is not what you want. And there's hundreds of them. So they become a bit of a pest. So when you do hook one, you basically just slack line and hopefully they spit the hook. Um, and John hooked what he thought was a queenie. You know, slack lining, slack lining. The thing wasn't spitting the hook. It's like, oh shit, you know, okay, we've got to land this thing now. Because also then they're pretty green because you've got them in heavy tackle and it's just a mess. So he's, kind of, he's sort of hauling this thing in as hard as he can. And I look over the side and I was like, fuck, that queen's dead already. Because uh, I could see just a little bit of hint of yellow. And I don't know if you've ever seen a dead queenie, they go sort of yellow. And I was like, shit, this thing's dead already. It must have been gut hooked or something, you know, like hooked in the throat or something. And I looked and as it sort of turned broadside, I was like, fuck, it's a permit. And of course, then like John backs off on the drag and like, we, I mean, it had inhaled that 150 gram stick boat, just inhaled. I mean, it was a big perm, it was probably like 10, 12 kilos, but it had literally inhaled this massive, massive stick boat with two 
seven o trebles hanging off the back of it. Just deep throated it. That's <laughs> wild, man. It's like what kind of permit does it? But I mean, Ed, they, they, it's the right time of the year they find them around the bait balls and they catch them on 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 like small poppers on P three and and light tackle and stuff like that. I think his best day, I think he's seven on all on poppers and some big fish, you know, to sort of fifteen kilos. Um. But yeah, it's a weird fish in a weird environment. But I mean, that's a Oman for you. The whole place is like that. Yeah, it definitely looks incredible. I think a lot of people, when they first hear about Oman, it's usually just about the jeets, but it's got so much more to offer than just big GTs. I've always said I would go back there purely for the light tackle. Purely for the light tackle. The jeets, are, for me, are like a, not a bycatch. They're just something, it's like, yeah, that's cool. I mean, I'm not, not in the shape to be throwing massive GT gear all day, every day. You know, it's a, it's a big boy sport and the guys who do it well and do it properly are fit and strong and they train. Uh, and it makes yeah. sense. And you can see, you know, 42 degrees, 45 degree heat, throwing massive lures all day and fighting big fish. You need to be in the sh- in pretty good shape or it helps. Um, but I, yeah, I've done it and I, I do enjoy it every now and again. I had a good time doing it on this trip. But for me, the light tackle, or light and medium tackle and variety in, in Oman is what, uh, what always takes me back for sure. And they've got big milk fit. Big, milk Big milkies there too. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, yeah, we caught some weird shit on this last trip too, like massive spade, uh, spade uh, batfish, huge batfish under the mothership um, on crabs. Uh, they come and obviously eat stuff off the bottom of the mothership or whatever. But I mean, we're talking like big batfish. I've caught small one, but Nate caught one on this trip. Must have been 10 kilos. Bloody hell. It's a giant bloody thing. Pulled him on his eight weight, his eight weight class, ran him around the boat a good number of times. Um, <coughs> oh, there's all sorts of other weird shit out there that's fun to chase and, and I think unique to that area as well. The two bar bream. Um, what else did I get? I got a small little amberjack off the beach on fly. Lots of big emperors. Um, and I know, you know, I think I put something on my Instagram the other day as well about. Um, you know, you find blue spangled emperors and, and yellow lipped emperors and all sorts of other emperors in a huge amount of tropical fisheries all over the world. Um, and I know that on St. Brandon's, the blue spangled emperor is the most hated creature in the world because they're small and they love a crab fly and they love to steal a crab fly from a permit. So it's the kind of thing where you'll be, you'll make a cast at a tailing permit and you know, you swing it in, you can see the permits start to wiggle, you know, they get a bit snake-like when they're about to eat, and you think, oh, I'm in, you suddenly you go tight, you're like, fuck yes, you set the hook, and the permit just stays there and carries on. You're like, what the fuck? And, of course, you drag in this tiny little, like, you know, eight-inch blue-fangled emperor, and there are bazillions of them, but the ones in Oman get huge, and they're honestly stronger than anywhere else I've found them. Um, I straightened two... 4.0 SL12s on them, trying to hold them out of the bricks when I was fishing on, off the rocks on my own. And it was a case of just take a wrap on the fly line and cast and one strip and they'd come up out of the out of the rocks and just to try to keep them out. But yeah, they get huge there and strong as hell. So I could chase those things all day and they're tasty as hell. That's gnarly. With the um, yeah. milkies, what sort of flies are you using for them? We get um, a few in the lakes here around town, which like they're sort of like a brackish lake. And then also on the flats, yeah. certain times of the year, um, you can see them on the flats as well. Oof. I, I mean, I've, I've only ever caught them in deeper water. Um, I would love to try and catch one again with my feet on the ground. Um, 
there's one or two, or there's the fishery, I think it's on St. Francois in, um, in Seychelles with the guys, certain times of the year, certain tides go and target them when they come onto the sand flats and they, they're swimming in, you know, picking up little pieces of algae off the bottom. But I've, the only ones I've ever caught have always been on your pretty standard milky dream, uh, Ono's milky dream, you know, just a green algae flower basically with a little bit of pink in it. I don't know. There's, there's huge numbers of theories and you can listen to the guys going sprouting off about having, oh, you need this little specific blue um, the flash in yeah. there because it's a, exactly COVID pods. I don't know. I think it's, if it's a confidence thing, it's a confidence thing. And it obviously, you know, it works for some people. Um, and I put that blue flash in just in case. So actually one of my um, lecturers at uni, he's doing a bit of research on copepods at the moment. And I said, oh, mate, if ever you need to do some research, I'm sure there's a few places I can point you in the direction and I'll just have to carry your bags for you. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, I mean, and I look, I love that side of, of the whole fly fishing and, and fly tying world as well. You know, some people just take it to such an extreme. And I love it. You know, I love that they do. I, I couldn't go that extreme and, and into it. And, you know, but I do love how, I guess it's a, it's an obsession with any, you know, anybody who obsesses about something, uh, whatever, whether it's fishing or cars or whatever it is, you know, um, cooking or whatever, but you've got to love those kind of total freaks that just go down to take it to the next level and get so into it and so deep into that zone. <clears throat> because I guess those are the people that at the end of the day, they kind of end up being the pioneers or the, in terms of techniques and finding things out is because they willing to go that crazy extra mile to, to figure it out and get as nerdy as possible about it. And there's a lot of that in fly tying, certainly on the freshwater fly tying, you know, with the guys who are tying, you know, very specific bugs and very, you know, this last stage of this mayfly at this time of the year. I'm like, I don't know, man, I'll just throw in Adams. Pretty sure it'll eat it. But, you know, the guy goes out there and outfishes, outfishes you like a totally. And you go, oh, okay, maybe it does work. Yeah, there's certainly people that realism is a massive thing. And we've even got that over here with the saltwater scene. Um, a few guys that are right into trying to create an ultra-realistic moon crab for the permit. And then you get something that looks super realistic. But then like one of my mates, Gavin Davis, he's just come up with this one. Um, they've just called it the Gabs Crab. And it's essentially just a body of flexo tubing that's sort of flat with some of those stream art moon crab legs underneath. And you can either yeah. flatten a ball sinker for the weight or you can use tungsten putty. Um, you look at it and you go, yeah, it's it's pretty much technically perfect. Like it's easy to cast. The water and the air can pass through the flexo tubing. He bends the hook point up like on a saltwater jig hook. So it always turn like it always lands hook point up. Um, gotcha, yeah. And you look at it, you go, it's not as tech, it's not as realistic as some of these other ones, but you can cast it. It sinks quickly yeah. and it's the general shape of a moon crab and it gets the job done. There you go. I mean, it's a, it's, you know, it's an impressionistic thing as well. And there's, you know, the, the flexo crab seems to have like taken over in so many fisheries. We throw crabs, which in many respects makes sense. I mean, we throw them in freshwater here for our yellowfish, basically like nymph with them um, in, in the rapids and in, in fairly strong flowing water. And the big smallmouth yellowfish love them because it's a big protein. You know, they're not, instead of having to eat, a thousand tiny little nymphs and bugs and whatever they you know they eat two crabs and they're full but um i still go back to the merkin you know nine times out of ten i love that thing 
you know, it's, and you know, you look at it, it doesn't look like a crab. It just looks like a round, you know, it's, it, it doesn't have like claws or anything, you know, uh, whether they're chenille claws or these new sort of molded claws, like the stream art ones or anything, but it just catches fish, man. And it's obviously something about the way it swims and the way it works that it is, it could be a shrimp. It could be a crab. It could be whatever, whatever it is they want to eat it. Um, so yeah, there's, there's some patterns that look, that look right and don't catch fish. And there's some patterns that just look like shit, but they just catch fish. So thankfully it keeps us all guessing, you know, otherwise it'd be pretty boring. It'd be like, okay, well, we don't need to start making any new flies or, or anything like that. I reckon that'd be boring as hell. So it's, it, uh, it drives the, the invention side of what we do, I guess. You got to have something to keep you up at night. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Something other than other than the big fish that you lost. Yeah. Yeah. Whiskey can fix it though. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So, yeah, are there any um, are there any other destinations that you've got your eyes on for hosting trips that you haven't really done yet? Like, are there places that you go? I think this isn't being done yet, or you think that you could do it really well. Um, I think, in terms of look, there's places I want to take people. Yes. Um, we're not you know the way we're set up we're not looking to um like pioneer new fisheries at all um you know i had this it's a it's a serious game that you know and the guys who are doing it are doing doing it right um well there are some people who are doing it right some people are doing it wrong we always go with the people that are doing it right but for us i think it's more about finding the the right people or finding a fishery that we think uh we can improve the overall experience by being involved um, not, you know, we're not trying to micromanage, um, or tell guides or whatever, or anything like that, how to fish. I mean, we're there to uh, basically take advantage of their expertise. It's just a case of managing how we get people there and the overall experience and, you know, trip prep and things like that. And making sure that, um, you know, whether if people are tying their own flies or if they're buying flies, that they're buying the right flies and that they're buying the right patterns or they're tying the right patterns and that that information is up to date. You know, I've seen brochures from certain places, um, you know, like buddies, uh, I'm very good friends with Rue Harvey who ties a lot, you know, and he's an exceptional tie. And certainly if you were ordering for saltwater that's uh, in the Indian Ocean, he would be the first person I would go to. And... You know, he sent a, somebody had sent him a flies list that because they were going to Seychelles, and he sent me like this brochure, or whatever flies list from the operator, and that he was like, "Do these look right to you?" And I was like, "Yeah, maybe like 15 years ago, for sure." <laughs> but you know, things like it basically just had a couple of patterns that have since been sur- I wouldn't say surpassed, but when I first fished. Uh, Seychelles back in 2005 it was I mean then it you know I fished Cosmo and Farquhar which I think we were like maybe the second or third batch of people that fished Cosmo back in the day there was no operation there they weren't operating there it was a, a, a an exploratory trip and the only fly you needed was a flashy profile that's it 6.0 flashy profile chartreuse flashy profile and you threw that anywhere near any GT and it was getting eaten like there'd be huge shoals of mullet just chilling and GT's chilling with the mullet, but you put a flashy profile 20 meters away and the GT eats it. It was nuts. And then my dad, I did that trip with my late father and my dad went back two years later and he said, you put a flashy profile anywhere near a GT and they were gone. 
you know, this fish learned and the patterns have developed and grown. So, you know, okay, sorry, getting off track, but going back to making sure the information is correct, you know, the guy, it was his first trip. He, he got sent this flies list and then sent it on to Rue to say, Hey, can you tie these for me for my socials trip? And it turns out that that fly list that he got was ancient. And while, yes, yeah, some of those flowers would certainly work, you can still catch GTs on, on flashy profiles and you should definitely have one or two in your bag. You potentially ruining a $12,000 trip by not having the correct information, whether it be flowers, whether it be leader, you know, like what strength leader, suddenly you rock up and you got, you know, the guy's like, hey, did you bring any, where's your 16 pound? And it's like, oh no, I've only got 20. It's like, didn't you bring any 16? Well, the, the guard sheet that you or the, the gear list that you sent said 20 pound, 50 pound, and 130 pound. Oh, no, yeah, no, we definitely need 16 pound now because the, the fish are a bit spooky. You can't ever have that happen, you know, and it's managing those kind of things to making sure that people have got all the, the right information and all of that is what we want to be doing. Um, so, yeah, in terms of where I'm looking, I mean, I'm, I'm off to the Amazon in October, which I'm really excited about. Um, it's been a dream uh, of mine since I was a kid. Um, I think, you know, anybody who saw a peacock bass when they were a kid wanted to go to the Amazon. And so I'm very excited about heading to um, Agwaboa Lodge um, in the Amazon. So it's a long way up. And one of the only sort of crystal clear water peacock bass fisheries out there. So can do some side fishing and whatnot. Um, which I'm really excited about, and I'm really wanting to get some more groups to to Oman. Um, I think it's yeah, it's just such a incredible fishery and such a cool place and such a great experience. Um, and I think a lot of people who have weird ideas about that part of the world, um, but it's probably one of the safest places in the world. Super nice people, incredibly well run operation, and just beautiful place and great fish. Yeah, okay. And with the Amazon trip, are you going to be chasing like the Payara as well, or is it primarily peacocks? Uh, no. So where we're going is primarily peacocks. So it's um, it'll be peacocks, arapaima, uh, and what else have they got? They've got like your um, the paku, not the big pakus, but the smaller pakus and the piranhas. Yep. They've got arowanas. And they've got a bunch of other bits and pieces and obviously all those crazy catfish, the sarudis and the red tails. Um, and then I'm going to try and tack on about seven or eight years ago now, I won a trip to um, Pira Lodge, which is in Argentina in the Iberia Marsh to chase Golden Dorado. And uh, it's only a four-day trip um, or what that I won. And it's it's a long way to fly for just four days, you know, so figured if I'm out there already and my prize is still available, I might try and tack that on and do uh, a little bit of Golden Dorado in the marshes there, which would be pretty wicked. Something else I'd like, you know, another fish I'd love to love to chase. Yeah, super photogenic fish and like those golden planks on them just look unreal. <laughs> yeah, it's just crazy. I mean, I, I think it's, for us, it's like a, it's like the South American target fish in terms of, especially fishing in, in, uh, in the Iberia marsh at, at Pira, because it's very similar to the Okavango Delta. Um, and the fish sizes, are, you know, it's not most of the fish, they'll be below 10 pounds. They're not, you know, not huge fish. Um, so it's sort of six weight and seven weight, uh, territory rather than 10 weights, but 
I'll take that all day, man. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and so yeah, if someone wants to get it. in touch with you to see what hosted trips you have on offer for that year or if they potentially just want to put their name on a list when you're going to organize something, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Best is probably to get a hold of us on Instagram at the moment um, or, yeah, um, which is just them lucky bastards, at them lucky bastards um, and drop us a, drop us a message on there and uh, either myself or Plog get back to you as soon as possible. We're busy. I mean, the uh, obviously with world travel over the last two years has been a bit of a kick in the butt um, in terms of trying to plan things, forward plan things has been really tricky because with travel restrictions um, and certainly for us where we are in South Africa being kind of the redheaded stepkid when it came to like the Omicron virus and everybody blaming us for the South African variant and all this other rubbish. So Travel has been really tricky. Um, thankfully, it's pretty open now, which is great. Um, so we're we're able to start firming up, you know, trips for later this year. We're doing a bunch of local stuff, um, you know, just to uh, the local estuaries here to go chase Grunter and Cobb and Learys. And then um, looking probably for our, our uh, calendar for 2023 is when we'll start locking in some of the, the international trips. Yeah, I'll make sure I put up um, some of the links for those pages too. So if anyone wants sure. to get in Cheers. touch Thanks. with you, um, yeah, or you can get hold of me on my Instagram, Neptune. It's pretty easy. Yeah, I'll make sure I put up some photos and that sort of thing. I'm sure there'd be a lot of people already that have sort of stalked your page and seen some of the cool fish. But just in case there's anyone that hasn't and wants to check it all out, um, you've also you're interested like in, interested. You're also involved with a couple of groups, Feathers and Fluoro and the Mission Fly magazine. How did that all come about? Um, yeah, good bunch of guys. So the Feathers and Fluoro um, was a blog which started um, started by two guys here, Fred Davis and Peter Kutsir. Um and it sort of just grew a little bit um and when they started adding on just people that they enjoyed the i guess the writings of or or you know their attitude and whatnot and um so it grew a little bit became a, a group of guys who fished together and who started putting articles together you know long before the mission magazine and sort of even before a lot of fishing stuff was being shared on facebook or anything like that or instagram um and pete and fred are two very you know, good mates, but two very, very different anglers as well. Um, Fred is both a spin and a fly fisherman, whereas Pete's like just pure fly only. Pete's really OCD, um, incredibly precise engineering genius. Fred's uh, much more about like figuring things as he goes. Um, so it was kind of a cool group or, or two brains that put this thing together. And then they just started inviting more people to join um, as they went. And I met Pete uh, fishing for carp, actually fly fishing for carp here in Cape Town when he was living here. And they actually brought me on as the the heathen consultant because at the time I was all just like jigging and popping obsessed um, and sort of wanting to diversify a little bit. And then it's just grown. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I don't do any heathen stuff for them anymore, but it's just grown into a group of mates that um, contribute to feathers and, you know, the feathers blog itself. So it's a bunch of guys who, who fish I and mean, some extremely good fishermen. Um, you know, the, the likes, I mean, everybody who's involved in that group. Um, and we've got, you know, the likes of JD Fulmata, who's a, a fishery scientist as well, who's involved. 
uh, Leonard Fleming, who's a microbiologist, but just an absolute genius, um, you know, freshwater fly fishermen in particular, like our local yellowfish and these really, really out of the way indigenous and endangered species. Len has a knack for finding them and catching them. Um, he's also incredibly fit and will walk for three days to catch a fish. So, um, yeah, we've got just, it's a great group of guys. And then the mission sort of started about um, with, you know, there were a couple of, just interesting because there were a couple of guys that I knew independently of each other almost who, um, so Tudor, who's the editor of the mission, he at the time was um, chairman of our local fly fishing club here in Cape Town. He was trying to sort of get revived a little bit. It was a bit of an old boys club and, you know, he started fly tying evenings and things. And um, so Tudor was talking, you know, thinking about a magazine. Um, and then Conrad Boetus, who's a famous artist, and this, you, can, you can see this big tarpon on the wall behind me is one of his yeah, pieces. Yeah. Um, and he, incredible creative, incredible artist, fantastic fisherman. And another guy, Brendan Body, who comes from the skate mag industry. He's been running a, a sort of free but print and digital skate, skate magazine called The Session Skate Mag here in South Africa for a while. And the three of them were all wanting to start a magazine, you know, something that was a little bit more kind of punk rock, fuck you, than your average, like, you know, here's your best six trout flies for the season, stuff that had been repeated, you know. So basing on the model of like the Drake magazine, the Flyfish Journal, um, wanting to try and bring writing back into into fishing magazines rather than a how-to um so the, yeah, and the three of them got together and, and the mission was born. Um, and it's great because, you know, we're I'm involved where I can be, you know, submitting articles and pictures and, and things like that, which has been, yeah, it's been rad. It's a cool mag and they just, you know, Tudor and, uh, it's, you know, Tudor is the main driving force behind it now. Um, it has been for a while. The fact that he's managed to, what is it, five years old now this year, I think, maybe. Is it five years? Yeah. I think it might I be five. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's done five years, which I mean, for a, a print, a free print magazine, um, in this day and age, uh, is Nearly pretty mental to, to survive. Yeah, well, you know, like basically introducing a print magazine, a free one, um, when print was dying and everything was going digital, um, they bucked the bucked the trend and went against the grain. Um, and I think it's just gone from strength to strength. And the cool thing is, like. Yes, there's um, still plenty of ads which you need the advertiser money to make it happen, but it doesn't just feel like it's just one massive ad. Like there's no. heaps of good content on there, some really original stuff. And it's like even yes. down here, we can get the digital version online. Like a lot of time, if there's a new issue that's come up, I'll be sitting on my lunch break at work and I'll check it out. And it's just cool to see different fish and fisheries and different techniques totally. that you guys are using over there. Um I think they even just did, if you want to purchase a print copy outside of South Africa, you can actually yeah. sign up for a subscription now. Yeah, yeah, they just did it. Because, I mean, it, it was getting so many requests from people going like, hey, is it available? Can you ship me one, you know? <coughs> Excuse me. And it just made sense for them because, yes, of course, you can read it online anywhere, you know? But sitting on sitting on the toilet with your laptop is not the same as sitting on the toilet with a magazine in your hand you know? <laughs> and i mean that's the truth of it it's uh it's perfect uh you know it's perfect throne reading material and um you know i've, always, I've got a stack of them in, in every bathroom in my house pretty much so yeah it's a 
it's it's really cool what they've done with it and, and the support that's come from um you know within the south african fly fishing community and the international community and i think it's nice to to see an honest slice of of what fly fishing and fly fishing culture is um because it's not you know i think it's it, certainly in south africa it was very much a tweed old boys rich you know old rich white dudes game and yeah. seen as that and the truth is over the last 15 years the youth has totally taken over fly fishing and pushed it in so many directions um which it's is cool to seeing a magazine that's got more that sort of street feel to it like as you said it's got a bit more like punk rock skate that sort of yeah. thing um I really and that, that comes from that came from you know like from from brandon certainly and from a, a designing uh point of view because you know he comes from a street uh, skate magazine um and tudor's willingness and a and push and approach to not just be normal um and then you know the renegade artist in in conrad Buertes, um as your sort of chief creative director of the magazine um it has worked out well in that but it's at the same time is is not just it's not anti-establishment it's not anti the old god um it's anti the fact that some people think the old god is the only way um yeah. you know fly fishing it and fishing you know especially in a a country like South Africa, where we have a really gnarly, ugly history, um, and you know, it's really anti stereotype sort of thing. Yeah, and and it's anti separate. Like you know, going oh well, you know, you'll never see anybody in the mission go like it only counts on fly, because that would be exclusionist or whatever you would call it. And and we, you know, we got to be conscious of that and wanting to keep everything open to everybody and. We love the old way and we love the new way. Um, I think it's important. So it's been a, and I think it's cool for, that's been a, a, a cool thing to show people uh, in South Africa and outside of South Africa, the fishing culture that we have here. Um, the that's part of the, that part of the aim Africa. with this podcast as well. Like for me, it's basically a massive learning curve. Like I want to hear the stories from some of the pioneers, the guys that started it all. But then yeah. I want to talk to blokes like yourself that's traveling the world, kicking ass, taking names sort of thing on some really <laughs> cool fisheries. Um, and I think it's good for other people that might not necessarily, like I'll never go out there and say, hey, I'm the world's best fly fisherman or fly tire. I just want to learn, meet some cool people and hear yeah. some cool stories. And I feel like the Mission Magazine is very much that. It still pays homage to the past, but they're going, yeah. hey, this is something that's completely new or a bit different. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. And I mean, I think also the, the reason, the, you know, the name, the mission, I mean, it makes sense because it is about the mission. You know, it's about the mission of going fishing or, or about the mission of, of putting a trip together or whether it's just down to your local or it's a three-month expedition through South America with a backpack on your back. It's, it's about the getting out there and doing it, I guess, or staying at home and getting depressed about it but it's real and it's being written about and i think it identifies with you know it's not like you said it's no one and if anybody starts telling me they're the best at something i'm generally going to go yeah you're probably not mate otherwise yeah, you wouldn't be telling me i'll tell you you're the best you can't tell me you're the best you know what i mean it's that kind of situation and and the mission is also never wanted to be about hey look at we went on this trip and caught this huge fish look at me i'm a hero um it's a lot more fun to read about fuck-ups to be honest yeah. because it's more human 
and it kind of makes you feel better about yourself do you, that you know everyone else cocks up that's pretty where like where i'm pretty open about my learning process and that sort of thing with fly like i'll happily say yeah i'm one of the new kids on the block i haven't been doing it forever um but i'm passionate i'm willing to learn i want to share stories so that other people can learn as well well, there's stuff they might never, might not have ever heard about before, um, and it's sort of a bit of a fuck you to the people that are out there going, "Oh, who's this bloke? He hasn't been doing it that long. What runs has he got on the board?" It's like, well, I'm having a crack. It's a new, fresh yeah. attitude. It's not just the same old attitude. And um, yeah, I think it's a great way to be. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. You say you got runs on the board. Damn right, man. This, it's not just Test cricket anymore, man. There's RPL and everything's happening these days, and T20 and all of that. You know, it's. A, there's so many avenues of fishing and to, like you said, the biggest thing is to, to learn and to, and I think it's great what you're doing with this, with this podcast as well. And, and like you're saying in, in going, you're not coming across as like, Hey, look at me. Uh, I'm going to teach you something. It's more, it's introducing a lot of people to more information and more stories. And for me, that also just encourages people too. You know, if you are still on, I mean, we're all still on the learning curve. Christ, I learn so much every day. And that's why I love fishing with good anglers because I'm learning from these guys all the time. And new anglers as well. People who don't come in with a preconceived idea of the way it's supposed to be done, whether it be fly tying or fishing or anything like that, they come in with a totally new idea. And it's great because it's something totally refreshing and shakes it up a little bit for you. Um, but I, I like that it's, you know, what you're doing is saying that, you know, people can, yeah, the, the learning part of it is actually, I mean, that's the fun, right? If you stop learning, what are you doing? And going on trips with people and, and learning from those people and learning from every, it kind of teaches you to learn from every single time you go fishing. Um, you will learn something guaranteed if you have that attitude and that mind frame, which is great. Yeah, and I think you have to surround yourself with people sometimes that know more than you because it is a great learning process for you. But then there's things that like I'll be talking to Brett in the shop and I'll show him a fly I've tied and he'll be like, oh, shit, how did you tie that? And I'll tell him and he's been doing it forever and then I've just taught him something. So it, I think it's exactly. good in a way that you can surround yourself with people that have done more or they know more so you're learning, but then it's also good to give back and then show people what you know that they might not necessarily know. Exactly. No, I think, and I mean, it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's a, yes, fishing is about the fish, but it's, it's also about, the, for me, it's about the people. I like people, you know, I yeah. like, look, I like being away from people as much as possible, but I do like people and I like hanging out with people that have the same interests as me. And, and like you said, surrounding yourself with people who know more or who are better anglers than you as much as possible is the best way to learn and the best way to keep interested as as well because it's inspiring um and i think it's also why it's important also to just like step out of your comfort zone every now and again in a fishery uh whether it's you know like going to fish the same waters the same way over and over again and you know once you figure out the system you're like okay that's how it works you know you you will lose some of the attraction or the the pull um if you're somebody that's always sort of searching and most fishermen are like always searching and I think, I mean, that's why the, the, the U.S. in particular, well, trout fishing in particular, let's say, has always maintained an interest because there is so much variety even within the same waters, right? It's like it's different times of the year, different hatches. Fish get like whatever, get all picky and will only eat this hatch or that hatch or, oh, it's a cicada year this year and 
there's a lot of things that chop and change, but we don't all have like trout fisheries on our doorstep that can keep that entertained. But I think it's important to then, like, even if you've got your local fishery totally dialed, is either try find a, a different fishery or try find try catch those fish in a different way. You know, uh, try get them to eat on top or try get them to eat whatever it is, so that you're constantly learning every time or figuring something out, and you kind of build this subconscious catalog in your head of scenarios and experiences and situations that suddenly you know you'll find yourself being totally flummoxed in a fishery somewhere and nothing's working with whatever and like in that mental rolodex somewhere in your head you know you would have probably had a similar experience might have just been on your local you know your local shitty fishery and you did x y and z which kind of worked and you think well let me try that here you know and you build this catalog of memories and, and skill sets and things that you can apply as you go. And I think it's an important thing to do is to keep pushing yourself out of that little local, okay, you know, um, or out of I'm going to fish this way every time and to keep yourself learning, I reckon. Yeah. And so we keep going back to like learning. And to be honest, learning is where it's at. I mean, if you're learning something, you're having a good time. Weirdly, if you told me that when I was – you know, 10 years old, that's cool. I'd be like, learning sucks. I want to go home. But <laughs> the reality is it's pretty damn cool these days. So yeah, I like to learn. And that's a good thing. Like, as you said before, it's good having people with similar interests and passions around you because then you can, if it can be a two-way street, if you meet the right people where you're willing, willing to share information and it's not just held close to the chest and it's a great way for yeah. people to learn or you might've fished somewhere or done something go oh how about this and they might not have thought of that thought process and it's good to be able to bounce ideas off each other because then you're both learning at the same time yeah yeah or you're both failing at the same time as well yeah and then you just go to the bar afterwards then you're like (laughs) okay well we learned that that sucked and that didn't work so let's you know but again that's learning and yeah and then you go to the pub and you're fine yeah happy days (laughs) well i think um we're almost going on two hours now so i think we might wrap things up But um, I'd love to get you on at a later stage, possibly even after you get back from your Amazon trip, because I think that'll be pretty unreal. Um, yeah, I'm it, really excited about that one. I'm not going to lie. It's, uh, it's a totally new part of the world for me. So, um, you know, it's, it's nice to, I have done a huge amount of fishing in, in the Indian Ocean um, in the last, like, you know, 10 years. So it's going to be, it's a totally new fishery for me in a, a new part of the world. Um, I've never been to South America, so looking forward to it. Yeah, cool. Well, we'll get you on there, talk about that, and I'll um, I'll put up a few links for your personal Instagram account and them lucky, lucky bastards and Feather and Fluoro and that sort of thing so people can keep up to date with what you're doing. Cool. Um, before fun. we do go, is there anything you wanted to add before we go? Or? No, no, I just wanted to say a massive thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It was, uh, it was well worth getting up on a Sunday morning for. My, <laughs> um, my hangover is nearly gone. I'm definitely uh, going to need some more liquid in shortly. But yeah, big thanks for having me on, man. I, I really appreciate it and, and stoked with what you're doing with the podcast. It's, uh, I mean, it's great for me too, you know, I'm, as a, like, you know, fly fishing, fishing history, whatever it is, obsessed. It's been super cool to, you know, certainly your last couple of um, the podcasts coming out with, you know, like guys that I didn't know about, but your pioneers as well and pioneering those fisheries and, and doing that kind of cool stuff. It's great from for me to learn about that and just, yeah, a whole new bunch of cool shit for me to learn about, which I'm stoked for. So thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for uh, having me on board. Well, thanks for coming on. And yeah, hopefully we see you down in Australia at some stage and we can show you what we've got to offer down here. 
yeah, man, I'm looking forward to it. I, I, it's been a trip like 10 years in the planning and it's definitely going to happen. I'd say in the next two years, I've got to be there. Oh, I'll make sure I put you in touch with some good operators then. That'd be great, man. Right, Thanks, right. dude. Thanks, Ray. All right, fella. Appreciate it. Thanks, folks, for tuning into this episode of the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. To find Andre van Vake on Instagram, you can look up at Neptuna, N-E-P-P-T-U-N-A. He also runs a page for his hosted trips, which is at, at Them Lucky Bastards. I'd also recommend checking out the Mission Fly magazine, which is a free digital magazine coming out of South Africa. To check out the latest issue, visit themissionflymag.com. You'll also find them on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again, and I look forward to bringing the next episode to you very soon. Mm-hmm.